Welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our podcast today will be a little different. Because the Alabama Historical Association postponed its 2020 convention, Secretary Mark Wilson has arranged video panel discussions about the future of Alabama history shown live on Facebook. The AHA recorded these sessions, and to reach a larger audience, we are proud to present them as edited audio in the Alabama History Podcast. Hello and welcome. I am Mark Wilson, Secretary of the Alabama Historical Association and Director of the Caroline Marshall Drawn Center for the Arts and Humanities in the College of Liberal Arts at Auburn University. We are happy to convene another conversation on the topic of 2020 and the future of Alabama history. 2020, for professional and avocational historians or anyone who is a student of history, Living in such a momentous time as the year 2020 can be a little mind boggling. So we're wondering at this time what the future will look like. And part of our wondering includes the study and the writing and the teaching of history, since our understanding of the past informs our future. Historians, defined as anyone who writes about the past, are by definition revisionist, since they are building on the work of others asking new questions, rendering a more perfect history as a civic enterprise for building a more perfect union. Today's conversation is related to historic markers and their texts, and our guests are from Huntsville, Alabama. Dr. Christine Sears is University of Alabama Huntsville Associate Professor of History. Drew Aiden is archivist with the UAH Department of Archives and Special Collections. Vaughn Bocchino, is a public historian. And then later in the program, we'll be joined from Montgomery by Scotty Kirkland, chair of the Alabama Historical Association's Historic Markers Committee. Welcome, folks. Hello. Hello. Let's start, and then Drew and then Vaughn will talk a little bit. None of us are going to talk very long, but we thought we'd just kind of set up our story. So good afternoon. It's really nice to be here with all of you. I want to thank Mark Wilson and the AHA for having us and having this discussion with us and Maven Beard for setting up all the technology that's really helpful. So Drew and Vaughn and I started working in 2019 together on research related to the Avalon Plantation. It's taken us on a wild ride and we've learned so much that we didn't know, which is really good because we had big plans and what we've learned can help us with those plans going forward. Avalon Plantation was most of the land that UAH now occupies. Now UAH wasn't founded until 1959, so there wasn't a direct connection between the plantation and UAH, but it's the landscape that was that plantation there. So when we started in 2019, there were two immediate things that really spurred our work. One was that there's always been interest in the very small cemetery that's behind one of the buildings at UAH, Morton Hall, where Llewellyn Jones, who fought in the Revolutionary War and in 1820 very briefly owned Avalon Plantation, was buried. 
there are a few other grave sites there as well. And we wanted to know both more about that and maybe put up some sort of marker to address the issue that the community has always been very interested in, in that. The archives gets tons of questions about that. So make that something that was part of the landscape to have a historic marker there. At the same time, an archeological class taught at UAH had just uncovered what would have been the base of Avalon's big house. So where the masters would have lived that was sort of between the history department and the nursing building, which was interesting. So it seemed increasingly clear to us that learning about Avalon Plantation and making that learning part of a community conversation was really important. We also wanted to tell an inclusive story about that land and the way the land was experienced by those who lived and worked on the land and tell a complete story. So when we started in 2019, Drew and Vaughn were doing a research project for a class and they uncovered some surprising information about post-Civil War owners, the Drakes and the Jones School, both of which Drew is gonna talk about a little bit more, but just let me mention that the Drakes were from Indiana and they were suffragists. And of course, 2019, the 19th Amendment was really important in conversation. So they ended up there focusing their research around that as being a really timely topic for that period. But we also, saw our work as just the beginning. So from the very beginning, we envisioned at least three historic markers that would put together a marker trail that we hoped would also have a self-guided component that people could walk around UAH and see how this Avalon plantation made a difference. The first marker is done, and we wanna thank especially the Huntsville-Madison County Historical Society's marker committee Alex Luttrell worked with us tirelessly to get the wording right and marshal us through this process, which was new to all of us. I also want to thank the Alabama Historical Association's Marker Committee, which was obviously invaluably helpful. And I want to especially thank Donald Christian Jr. and the Order of the First Families of the Alabama Territory, who largely funded this beautiful marker that we were able to get with the bicentennial seal up at the top. The marker is largely about the cemetery. And though it mentions the enslaved people, it really is more about the master class. When we had this first marker done, this spring, everything changed twice. It changed first with COVID, which obviously stopped our work and moved UAH to all hands on deck to how we were gonna adjust to teaching in this COVID world. That summer, things changed again with George Floyd and the other related events that made us question putting this marker that was largely focused on the master class as opposed to the enslaved people or the African-Americans in Reconstruction who had great success here on this property. It seemed to make that problematic without the larger context of those other markers that would indicate that rich African-American history that was enacted on this landscape. So because of all those things, COVID particularly, and the summer events, we put the marker project on hold and we've just started picking that work up again. And one of the things that we've learned is how important involvement is and having wide involvement. So we're working hard to get UAH community involvement, to talk to student groups about our work, to get their input, their insights. We are starting that outreach in a broader way that I think both Vaughn and Drew are gonna talk about. Because again, what we learned is that this marker process is really a community history experience. It's about learning about that history and sharing that history and including everybody in that rich history that we have. We envisioned two other markers. 
that we've just begun work on, but I think Drew is going to describe those more, and I'm going to leave this to him then to take over. Sure. Thank you, Dr. Steer. My name is Drew Aiden. I'm an archivist with UH Archives and Special Collections and also a graduate student in the, the History Department. And I've prepared a couple of slides and images that I'd like to share with you to give a background and showcase some of the, the research that we've done on the background of the property. So the, the early history of Avalon from 1809 to 1820, various land speculators owned that property until Llewellyn Jones purchased it in 1820. Llewellyn Jones was a Revolutionary War veteran. He owned lands in Georgia and, and purchased Avalon early in 1820. And actually, just three weeks later, he was found hanging by his handkerchief in the scaffolding of a newly constructed building on the property. So his estate is divided among his two sons, and Alexander Jones inherits Avalon along with half of his father's 40 slaves in 1820. The enslaved population of Avalon increased drastically under Alexander, going from those initial 20 enslaved persons all the way up to 139, according to the 1850 census. This large population of enslaved persons at Avalon leads us to believe that there, that there was a burial site on campus, as opposed to smaller plantations might share communal slave cemeteries. We would like to know more about those that were interred here and that lived at Avalon beyond just their age, name, and sex at the census data that we had a look at. So part of our project moving forward will include further genealogical study to identify who was buried here and learn more about their lives and their descendants as well. Shortly after the war, Avalon was purchased by Priscilla and James Drake. These were well-known social reformers and women's suffragists. This was an exciting discovery for us. We can point to Priscilla Holmes Drake as Alabama's first known active suffragist. She was an officer in uh, the National Women's Suffrage Association. They only owned Avalon from 1868 to 1871. But when the Drakes sell off the property, they sell the main chunk of it and then the house to the Crawfords, but they also portioned up smaller areas of the land and sold those off to descendants of the enslaved population that was at Avalon, including Shandy and Reuben Jones. So back in 1820, with the death of Llewellyn Jones, a slave named Eliza Jones and her three biracial children were manumitted. Some have speculated that their father was either Alexander Jones or his father, Llewellyn Jones. Shandy Jones went on to grow up a free man of color in Alabama, learning to read and write. He was one of only 500 free men in the state in 1850, and he went on to become the first black state representative from Tuscaloosa County. His half-brother, Reuben Jones, was also active in politics and born on Avalon Plantation. During the war, he changed his name and fought for the Union and became one of the first state representatives from Madison County. Reuben Jones was also involved in one of our most exciting findings, the Jones School. So according to an 1870 census, we know that Reuben Jones was neighbors with William Hooper Council, who's a huge figure in Alabama education. Two of them were neighbors and lived together about a mile west of campus. 
William Hooper Council would, would go on to be the first president of Alabama a and and one of the founders of that university. According to, on the right side there, the Teachers Monthly School Report, this was registered with the Freedmen's Bureau. We know the council taught at a school called the Jones School in a building owned by Reuben Jones from at least 1869 to 1870. This schoolhouse was on Avalon Plantation UAH campus. We suspect that this schoolhouse was located within the former slave village in kind of the southwest portion of campus. So this is, you know, exciting discovery. One of the first schools for black students, if not the first school in Madison County was located here on UAH campus. So as Dr. Sears mentioned, we think the best way to tell this inclusive and complete story of Avalon is a, a series of three historical markers and an interpretive historical marker trail that, that these sites. The, the first one to be placed at the Jones Cemetery, which is behind Morton Hall. As we mentioned, to get the general overview of the Jones family, the ownership history of the property. It mentions the plantation house, which stood about a couple hundred yards away. The next marker would be where the slave village was located. It would give information on the Jones School and also mention that this was the birthplace of both Chan and Reuben Jones. The final marker would be if we're able to definitively identify the location of the slave cemetery. So back in 2018, an archaeology class conducted a survey with ground penetrating radar on campus and identified some anomalies that could be consistent with grave sites on campus. So part of our project moving forward is to do additional archaeological field work and studies to identify the, the boundaries of that cemetery and erect a marker there. At this point in the project, we're trying to speak to organizations in the community to make people aware of the project and elicit some feedback from the university and the community at large as to the best way to tell this story. Our goal is to tell this story in a way that's respectful to all, aligned with UAH's core values, but we can't do it alone. There was a recent Chronicle of Higher Education article that says a university may occupy only one seat at the table. Descendants must be identified as early as possible and included in deliberations. So too must representatives of the local community. So it's really a big push going forward is identify and include them in this project. We have two graduate students starting next semester that we're going to involve them in doing this kind of genealogical research to, to help us track down those descendants. With that, I'll turn it over to Vaughn, who's going to tell you a bit more about our research and process. Hello, I'm Vaughn Bocchino. I'm a public historian here in Huntsville. I work with a couple organizations like the Scottsboro Boys Museum and the Goldsmith Shepman family. But with this project in particular, the Avalon, uh, I kind of want to give you guys a, just a sort of a brief history of how we started with this project and where we hope it will go and where we are right now. So in the spring of 2019, Drew Aiden and I did a independent study in a graduate class for Dr. Sears. And we knew that we wanted to focus somehow on the Avalon plantation, but it was a class. So we had a whole semester to put together a 25 page graduate level paper and hopefully start the process of a historical marker with the idea that we wanted to in the future get more. 
we focused in on the Drakes pretty early because it was an early story of Alabama suffrage, and there just wasn't a lot of stuff written about that. We knew about the plantation because of the archaeology classes that Ben Hawksbergen had done in 2018. We were doing a lot of presentations about specifically Priscilla Holmes and James Perry Drake. And in the course of that research, Drew came across really interesting information about the schools and the council and Shandy Jones and all that. After the class ended, we turned in our paper, got our grade and everything. We decided to move it from kind of that real esoteric topic of these people who only lived in Avalon for about three, four years to the more inclusive picture. So what we've been trying to do since the spring of 2020 is drum up community support. We've been working with the SGA at UH. We've been working with the local chapter at UH of the NAACP. We've been reaching out to Alabama A&M because there is that really good connection with council and the project here. We want to find a way to definitively prove that the enslaved cemetery is where we think it probably is, or we think of where it probably could be. And again, that goes back to the archaeologist, Ben Hawksbergen, who found the ground penetrating radar of things that look suspiciously like graves. Again, we won't know until we actually get out there and do some more work, but the community of volunteers who want to help with that particular thing has been quite positive around town. Our core thing that we're working on right now is just to get the word out because a lot of people just don't know. People, when they're walking by, they see the small cemetery and it's such a small part of such a huge picture that we feel is a really important story to tell from all the enslaved persons who work there, all the schools and just the whole story. That's how it started and where we hope to take it. Thank you three for a wonderful overview of this really interesting project. I hope you got a great grade in the class that you worked Oh yeah, we did. <laughs> of course. I hope that's, that's the case. Uh, it feels like the story, a university or any institution trying to come to grips with the historical landscape that's around them. I think you illustrate well that one aspect of research leads to another aspect of research and there are still many unanswered questions. But I think you are helping us see what a process like this can look like and should look like, uh, particularly at a university with many different classes, instructors, and students who are participating that are on that same search. And so I have some bigger questions to ask, and I know we'll get some questions from folks on Facebook as we have already. But first, I want to invite Scotty Kirkland to join us uh, from Montgomery, the Alabama Department of Archives and History, who has chaired our marker committee for several years now. Scotty works day in and day out with communities who are working on markers. And as you mentioned, working with committee member Alex Luttrell in North Alabama, uh, seeking to figure out how to tell, render a story of human lives in a very minute space. And so Scotty, talk to us a little bit about the marker program. And when you hear this story and you understand this story, where does it fit in terms of what communities are seeking to do to be more inclusive with historical markers? Well, thanks, Mark. I'm happy to join you all today. And first, let me start by just saying good work to Christine and to Drew and Vaughn. We were very happy to get this marker application. We received it through Alex Luttrell, who not only is on the Huntsville-Madison County Historical Society, but he is a long-term member. In fact, I think he's the longest serving member of the AHA Historical Marker Committee. 
So we were very happy to get the marker and await the day that it will be installed once pandemic is behind us. You know, AHA has been putting up markers since the 1950s. We are nearing a thousand markers, a thousand places that we have held up as important. Mark, you said something about the historical landscape. And I think a lot of times we forget that that can change, that the stories that we can tell through these markers evolves. And I think that's a good thing. I think the idea of a series of markers on the present day campus of UAH to look at not only the plantation that was there before, but the people that made that plantation go, the enslaved men and women who were there to call forth their history. I think that's really important. That's because of new historical information that people like Christine and Drew and Vaughn have been able to suss out. And I think that a generation ago, this is not the marker that our association would likely put in that spot. One of the ways that the association can help as we enter the future is in telling these small stories, history on stick, as some people call them, in the most inclusive and diverse ways. And these are good ways to foster community conversations. You know, the, the AHA Marker Committee has for many, many decades adopted this grassroots approach. The markers begin with local people. They come to us and we help them facilitate the creation of the marker. We fact check what they give to us. We put it in our established AHA marker style. But we want those conversations to start in those local communities. We want to be a facilitator of those conversations. But we believe that that is the best way for this program to make a real difference is to be something that starts these conversations in these communities. And I think that's incredibly important. And I think that, you know, this marker is a good example of the kind of marker that we want to continue doing. You know, a couple of years ago, we had the opportunity down in Mobile to do a marker at Memorial Park, which is the World War I memorial in that city. When that memorial was created in the 1920s, the names of many of the African-American soldiers who had served during the Great War were left off. They were either purposely left off or they were left off because their family members could not pay for their inclusion. And so we placed a marker, I believe in 2018, they talked a little bit about the context of that memorial, but then on the reverse side, put for the first time the names of all of those, I think there were 30 African-American servicemen who were excluded from the original marker. This Avalon marker is, I think, another example of us looking to this marker program to tell a more complete story of these communities and a more complete story of Alabama. We appreciate that, Scotty. Here's an opening question for all of you. As you are thinking about the confines of the marker text, you only have so many words, you only have so many characters. What do you hope when a person reads a historic marker, if they can't have the entire story gained from it? There's a great program in the Madison County Historical Society. Dean Dayton put together a system of QR codes that exist under a lot of the historical markers in that area. And the benefit of that is not only you can scan those and it'll bring up other markers in the region, but those can link out to additional resources related to that marker that tell you more than 300 words can ever convey. Programs like that that add a little bit more information and context about the marker, those are really helpful. Go ahead, Vaughn. You talk about how hard it is to parse it down. Writing that article, Drew, was a lot easier than writing a 300-word marker. Right. 
you send it to a lot of people and everybody works on it, trying to get it as clear as possible. And hopefully you get through a whole bunch of different eyeballs to see what you could leave off, what you should add. By the time it actually gets to y'all, it's hopefully as clear as it can possibly be. Mark, I'm unfortunately sometimes the person that has to break that bad news that we can't put 25 page research paper <laughs> in bronze. I think when we talk to communities and local folks that want markers, we always tell them that you have essentially 300 words. You have 600 if you want to do a different on the front and back like we did here. You want to make sure that every bit of that is working as hard as it possibly can for you. So you have to tell the most succinct version of that story. But we always encourage local people to use the marker as that jumping off point. As Drew said, either with a QR code or with something that directs them to a website, there are any number of ways that you can take what's on that marker as sort of the, the opening into a broader history. The importance of these markers is obviously you commemorate the spot. And so if they're walking around campus or if you're driving down a highway and you see this marker, the idea there is to encourage you to think about what happened here in the past and to pique that historical curiosity. I hope that a marker would lead somebody to do a search or to call an archive or to do some research on their own. Jane Deneef has a question. If a history trail existed at UAH commemorating Black history, how can UAH ensure that Black visitors are safe from harassment by UAH campus police? I want to rephrase that just slightly, if I may. What do you hope this kind of work does for relationships among people and the kind of work that we all need to be doing as citizens? I think that type of inclusive history, as we all know, can really make a difference to say you know, there was a really important Reconstruction era school for African Americans at UAH. And that indicates the importance of education to all of us. UAH has spoken about that. I agree that more work needs to be done at UAH to put their money where their mouth is, right? So, and I think they are doing that. I think that the recent events have been a good learning experience for the administration. And I think they are taking good action. That's obviously beyond our pay grade, but we do hope that uncovering this type of history will really fit with what the administration says they want to accomplish and continue that work of bringing communities together to say we're all in this together. And part of the way that we can see that we're all in this together is to uncover this history that we all are aware of that brings us perhaps greater understanding of the past that we all build on. That's really important to keep in mind and the support that you receive from outside of the community as well. One of the reasons we wanted to host this conversation is to learn from you, but also to share our support with you. Let's go to another topic that you mentioned. Ed Bridges asked if descendants of Reuben and Shandy Jones are still around and Guy Hubs. Have you been able to talk to Guy Hubs about his work on Shandy Jones? So there's actually a published volume that Alabama A&M, I have yet to consult it, but somebody has put together a genealogical history of Shandy Jones, which we definitely want to consult as we go forward. Shandy Jones was born on Avalon and was manumitted when he was four years old. We'd also like to identify the descendants of the enslaved that worked at Avalon their whole lives, identify people that were interred in that cemetery. Shandy Jones' descendants are an extremely important part of this puzzle, but we want to identify as many descendants as possible. And I don't think that any of us have talked to Guy Hubs, so thank you, Dr. Bridges, for that comment. I've definitely written that down, and we will follow up on that. I may have to email you to find out more about that. 
And to answer about making connections with the Jones descendants who are still around the Huntsville area, there are two graduate students coming up through the graduate program who are interested in working on this project. So you have to talk to Dr. Sears and what she has them do. But one of the definite main bits of research that we're hoping to get and outreach are, again, the descendants. That would be a good semester-long project for more students. Excellent. And if you don't know, Mary Jones Fitz from Marengo County is someone to contact and she would be happy to help you, I am sure. Mary Jones Fitz is also a member of our marker committee, so it's nice to see her on here being helpful as always. Here's a question that would be interesting for y'all to answer. As a result of this project, could UAH offer education on this diverse history for the public beyond the markers? I think that that's something that we will definitely work on. So I'm really glad to see that raised because I feel like that's a really important point for us to keep front and center. That part of our goal, of course, is to foster community education and community conversations, like just conversations back and forth. So I definitely can see us doing things like that. I know that we were hoping that when we are able to put the markers up, we can have some community events around that for both education and conversation. But I'm hoping we can do a broader effort than that as well. We've tossed around a few ideas. I'm not sure what will come of them. Well, thank you for that. And I look forward to seeing what the future will hold for that. Here's a general question about historical markers. Uh, Scotty may want to go first, would love any thoughts from any of you. Oftentimes, we may come across a historic marker that was placed many decades ago, where you might say, wow, that represents part of the community, but not the entirety of the community. Scotty, are there examples, or do you think there'll be future examples of communities that will say, you know, this marker served a purpose in its time, but it's time to have a new historic marker? Absolutely. Within the last year, we have had more conversations like that with communities where people will come to us and they'll say, you know, this marker is starting to show its age, but the text too could use a revisit. And we encourage that type of community efforts. We really think that the best markers are the ones that reflect these local communities. So we very much welcome when people want to redo those markers. Now, if the text is not a problem and it's just that the marker needs an extra coat of paint, we have a program that helps local communities to do that as well. We are always mindful of the fact that any group that's been placing markers, as long as we have, we will learn new things about these places. We will think about these places in different ways, and we think that is good, and we encourage those places to contact us, and we can work with them on that. We don't want to be corporatist about it. We don't want to do the work for them, but we certainly welcome any effort to look at these markers and see how they can help foster these community conversations. Rebecca Mender has a comment related to this. An example of text not matching the marker's significance is the first African Baptist church in Tuscaloosa. The marker text does not mention the church's significant role in Bloody Tuesday. Thanks for that example, Rebecca. And I'm sure that's representative of many examples. And it illustrates that the work of public history is ongoing and ever-present, as this conversation seems to show. Dr. Sears, you've taught many wonderful students like Drew and Vaughn. As you continue to teach students, is there a sense in which there's a greater appetite for the diversity of history? What have you learned from teaching these wonderful students over the years related to this topic? Well, I mean, I could say a lot about that, but I'll try to confine myself. I think one of the things that particularly of late, as you can imagine, is that there is an appetite for learning about diversity. So students seem to really want to learn 
about Black history, particularly, but also like women's history, Latino history, other diverse groups. So I would definitely say that I get more interest in that and more openness to that. I've been here now for 13 years and they've been very open to these things, but there is a slight difference in how much they're willing to embrace those stories. So I see them making connections and making connections to the modern world and thinking about the past and how these things happened. So I would definitely say there's more of an interest. You know, we used to call it dead white man history. I'm not sure that's the best thing to call it now, but something to, to go along with that and to complement that. So of course we don't wanna, you know, get rid of George Washington. He's a, he's a great person to study, but we wanna add into that other stories of that time period. And I find students hunger for that. Drew and Vaughn, do you wanna have a comment related to that? I don't have anything really to add. In my dual role as both a student and an archivist with the Department of Archives and Special Collections, it's my job to document and to interpret the history of the university. Doing studies on this land and the history that happened here before it was UAH is certainly part of the purview for my job, and it's great to see so many students that are interested in that. We get questions usually in the beginning of the fall semester, freshmen asking about that cemetery on campus, and it's been really refreshing as we do more research to be able to source the students that are interested in learning more about campus history. We have Dr. Bridges who would love to know more about Avalon's history. Did Avalon continue as a cotton plantation into the 20th century? I don't think I know the answer to that. Drew or Vaughn, do you? We know that the big manor house that used to stand close to the nursing building was in pretty decrepit shape by the 40s. I don't know how much work they were actually doing on the land. We hear living memory of the house and the area being in real rough shape. I personally don't know if it was an actual functioning farm in the 20th century, but it seems like it was in pretty rough shape by at least the 30s and 40s. A future student project. Scotty, Rebecca Mender would love for you to give everyone an idea of what the marker process entails. How does this process work? Where's the starting point? Where's the end point? Uh, happy to. We tried a couple of years ago to streamline the process and also to get some better guidelines in place so that people really have one site to go to where they can get all the information. If you go to the Alabama Historical Association's website, there's a historical marker tab. Click on that tab. There is a whole lot of information on new marker requests. So what you see there is the committee's guidelines and that sort of spells out the process that you would go through. There's sample marker text, there's a copy of our style sheet there, and also there's a marker application, which is just like a three-page logistical document. It's not very intimidating at all. It's mostly contact information, shipping address where the marker can be sent, any information on placement or time frame that we need to have. And there's also a place to drop in there the sample text. In addition to that sample text, we ask for some sources. Once that document is complete, it's emailed to me, and then I start to work on it. If it's in the geographic area or in the subject matter area of one of our committee members, I also send it to them. We'll work it over, look at any questions that we have, and then we amend that draft text and send it back to the local sponsor. Usually we take our time with this. We want a final draft of the marker that everybody is proud of. So something that the committee and the association will be happy to lend their name to, but also something that still reflects the wishes of the local community. So once we get to the point that we all are happy with the text, I send that to our marker fabricator, CWA Studios, who's been doing AHA markers from the very beginning, and we get a quote for the text. And then once we receive payment for 
the marker, we place the order and we go from there. And I want to say here too, markers can cost upwards of $2,500, $2,600, but we don't ever want a community to be turned off to a program to install a new marker by the money. There are plenty of ways to fund these markers. We don't ever want anyone to just say, well, I'd love to tell this interesting story, this important story, but I can't write you a check. We can help with that. We can help find other people in your area and in the state that are interested in helping you tell those stories. If everything works right, the process takes between two and a half and three months, and it takes about 10 weeks for the marker within that time period to be fabricated and then it's shipped to the company. So we've tried to do as much as we can on the front end to facilitate a faster process. We hope folks will be in touch with you about their marker project. And as further evidence that Historic Markers is a civic enterprise, John Kelton mentioned that one of his Eagle Scouts in Huntsville refurbished a few of markers for his Eagle Scout project and he continues to refurbish markers. It is a civic enterprise and what you are working on is a wonderful story in progress and we congratulate you for the progress that you've made thus far. We look forward to COVID-19 being behind us so that that marker can get placed and so that further research can be done so that the story that you want to tell, you are able to tell and to do so with historic markers as one of the ways in which you will tell the story. So for everybody who's involved with the Alabama Historical Association, congratulations to the team at University of Alabama Huntsville, and we look forward to future updates. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for y'all's help with it. Yes, appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at City Stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.